For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, there is no agony like bearing an untold story inside you. That's a quote from Zora Neale Hurston. It serves as a theme for this week's show. We'll hear some untold stories about autism in our community. Adiba Nelson tells us about a conversation she thinks more parents and their children should be having. And acclaimed actress Vanessa Bell Calloway talks about coming to Tucson to portray Zora Neale Hurston in a one-woman play. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Developmental milestones, chromosome deletions, neurodivergency. These phrases may not mean a lot to some of us, but to others they're concepts that help to define the world because they or someone they love is living with autism. Our roundtable guests, Bree Seward and Katie Murdoch, are both moms raising sons who are on the spectrum. Josh Anbar is a doctoral candidate in public health at the U of A, and he lives with Asperger's syndrome. They're all active with the Autism Society of Southern Arizona, and next they'll share some untold stories about their lives. To help guide them, I gave them questions printed on cards. They took turns reading the questions aloud and responding. My name is Bree Seward. I'm the Associate Director of the Autism Society of Southern Arizona. Do you remember what it was like to receive that first diagnosis, and how long did it take for you to accept it? And this question's very clear in my mind, um, because there's some days in your life that you will remember forever. And I think I changed like four times before I was going to the neurologist. And for some reason, I just felt it in the air that we were going to receive something to understand what was going on with my oldest and I didn't understand what was happening with him. I thought it was maybe something with me. Just things seemed a little bit more difficult. He had issues um, interacting with peers. There was a speech delay. And there were some sensory issues that he had um, with water and lotion and putting on sunscreen. So things were just more difficult than probably your typical child. Um, and so the neurologist just said, it's autism. Just very plain and simple. This is autism. He's not looking at me um, in the eye. He's looking out the window when I come into the room and he's not interacting with me. And you're saying that he has sensory issues at home. So those three things are telling me that he has autism. So you, you leave and you head out and your life has just changed dramatically in one day. So I think on the car ride home, I just mourned it a little bit because you never want your child to be labeled. You you have all these ideals and pictures for what it's going to be like as a parent raising a child, but this diagnosis is very unfamiliar territory, so it's just brings up a lot of fears because you don't know what it will bring along with it. So I think I carry that weight at night, and then the next day I just felt like like it was a breath that just blew over and I had to go to work and that it was my job as his mother to do something about it and not let him just continue on living like this. So I opened the papers. I looked at each one. I didn't know what each one of them meant. So ABA therapy was not something I was familiar with. Applied behavior analysis therapy now I know is therapy that helps with behaviors with autism. So I think as far as how long it took for me to accept it, I think 24 hours is what I took 
for myself to absorb it and and somehow just process it. But the next day when the sun rose again, I was just knew what I had to do because he couldn't do it for himself. Hi, this is Josh. And as somebody who has autism, my perspective on first being diagnosed is different. A lot of individuals with autism are diagnosed when they're young. And I was diagnosed when I was 16. And that comes from a reality that my parents were trying to help me figure out what I was going through and what I was dealing with. And autism just wasn't necessarily part of the clinical vocabulary at the time. And there were a lot of concerns with intellectual disability, learning disability, but that just wasn't enough. I was still having a lot of social anxiety, overwhelmed in various group situations. I know that my parents are really concerned about me being depressed, me being anxious, and we eventually saw a, a psychologist, actually a psychiatrist, excuse me, who considered Asperger syndrome as a logical explanation for why I was struggling in the way I was struggling with social communication problems, but at the same time having this ability to express myself that I'm very fortunate to have. So I was 16. I, I went and spent a lot of time with this psychiatrist in Syracuse, New York, and she eventually figured out that this is probably what what I was dealing with, and she talked with my mom about other other challenges and she eventually brought me in and told me that I have this thing that they call Asperger syndrome which is related to autism was related to autism now it all is just autism spectrum disorder and that was the end of it it didn't really change anything for me it didn't really take me time to process the information that I was told from that I have an issue versus when I walked in the door I didn't have an issue because I'm still who I am so I just kept being me. Hi, this is Katie. Um, like Bree said, I, I vividly remember the first day that my child was diagnosed. And then seven months later, my second son was diagnosed. So with the first one, similar to Bree, I kind of dove into getting services going and to finding what I could do to make this situation the best it could be. Um, when my second was diagnosed, I sort of hit a wall. It was this realization that I needed to do that process all over again, which was exhausting and draining and frustrating. Um, so that one was a little bit harder, not because of the autism diagnosis per se, but because knowing the hurdles you have to come over with getting services was so daunting. And I was not looking forward to it. It, it was a really tough time. Um, but like Josh said, it doesn't change your child. When we went in to get the diagnosis, they came out the same kid. And that was something I needed to focus on. And also focusing on getting through the time of getting services to the best of my ability was so crucial to their future that that made it easier to do. So this is Josh, and I'm asking the next question. And the question is, have you developed a new language to communicate with your loved one? give an example of how it works. So for me, as someone who has autism, I found it very easy to communicate with the world through metaphors related to Star Trek. I was born and raised in a, in a house where Star Trek was always on the television because my dad is a huge uh, trekker. And 
that was something I really enjoyed and was something I could spend time with my dad. But it's how I communicated with the world. And as I learned more about myself and more about various people with autism, it's a very common thing to do. So with my two little boys, uh, they're I guess if you are using the spectrum, they're kind of opposite ends. They're two very unique individuals as with any individual, really. So I had to learn that communication is not just verbal. So for us, it depends on the kid. And for my oldest, it was he communicated through movies. And I didn't even realize he was communicating that way until he would start acting out a scene from a Pixar movie. And it would pertain to whatever situation was happening. And it was such a aha moment of, oh my gosh, he is communicating with me. My middle son um, actually just said his first word, I think it was like a month ago, and his first word was wow. And it was this moment where we were, I was stressed out and doing something, and all of a sudden he just yelled it. And you just stop everything. The world stops around you, and you're just so, here's this little boy who is three and a half years old, who works 40 hours a week with a habilitation worker and speech therapy and all of these things. And he said his first word and it was like, it it just made everything worth it. I have goosebumps even thinking about it. And so his communication has been a little bit different, but those moments become so big. I think with autism, you take nothing for granted. Like you just appreciate those little moments that I think parents take for granted you know I mean a word from your child when you maybe haven't heard it in years I think for me I had to learn how he communicated so he was very visual so with schedules or if we were planning our day it was pictures of what first is happening and then what next is happening and even I remember like making charts for menu items like a menu that he could pick from so I just started seeing his world the way he saw it. My world became very visual. And like, you can't say, go go to your room, pick this up, do this, do that. It's a mess inside their brain and you just have to break it down for them. And so I had to learn how to speak his language. And I think with autism, that's a big part of it is that you have to learn how they see the world. And I think it's a better world to live in. This is Katie. So the question I picked is, do you have a story about how autism has impacted a marriage for better or for worse? So I chose this question. Um, It's actually pretty applicable to me. And I get it a lot, actually, is I just recently got divorced and it's people try and blame autism. And I find that to be kind of offensive. I think that certainly the diagnosis had an impact on our relationship of how we changed as humans and how you react to it and how you view the world. And for me, I dove in headfirst into getting services, getting involved in the community and trying to make a difference in the world. And it just wasn't the same for him, not that he did anything wrong, but this change in family dynamic, that's what contributed to our marriage coming to a head. I guess I get frustrated with this question sometimes because it's not autism. That would be like blaming my children. And you can't blame your children for something that they were diagnosed with for the end of a marriage. I think it's just really important to have that discussion of it wasn't autism that broke my marriage. There's many factors. And maybe the diagnosis brought to light what was really brewing beneath the surface. Well, I can identify with Katie (laughs) because I am also divorced. And I love that you pointed out that it is not autism that broke you. It was 
for me, a rocky foundation. And I think the things in marriage that come up in life, it's either going to bring you together or separate you. And that was just one of those things, those extra things that if you don't have a strong foundation, it's just not, it's not going to work. And, and also I think individuals deal with this in their own way. So the partner may be in different stages of denial or grief or ignoring the situation. So I think we just all have different coping mechanisms and it can either drive you apart or keep you together. So it's not autism is what breaks you. It's, it's what was already there that might be broken. So my family dynamic is actually really interesting because I was I was not the first of my siblings, even though I am the oldest, to be diagnosed with a problem. I had my middle brother. I have three siblings, a sister and two brothers. So the middle brother, when he was born, he was born with a hole in his heart. And so he was always the center of familial attention. And he later, at the age of four, ended up having a stroke. I can't say how that in and of itself affected my parents' marriage, but my parents have always been together and have always worked together as a team. When I came along at 16, um, many, many years after my brother's stroke, my parents just took it in stride that they now understand, at least in part, what I'm going through and the struggles that I'm facing with my own relationship with the world. But it wasn't an earth-shattering event the way it can be for some people and in some family dynamics. I know for me as an individual with autism, despite the fact that I am not married, I'm very much single, I have had relationships before. And having autism presents some unique aspects to, the, to those relationships. I have to understand that people don't see the world the way I see it. Unlike my parents who are kind of stuck with me by blood and by right and when I was younger by law, a person that I'm spending time with, they're choosing to spend time with me and I'm choosing to spend time with them. And I have to be cognizant of that. And sometimes that's easier said than it is actually done. Our guests were Bree Seward, Josh Anbar, and Katie Murdoch, three people in our community who understand autism from the inside out. They'll be among thousands gathering at the Kino Sports Complex on Saturday, April 6th for the 13th Annual Autism Walk and Resource Fair. Full information is available from the Autism Society of Southern Arizona online at asaz.org. You can also hear more of this roundtable discussion on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Adiba Nelson is a Tucson author, activist, mother, diva, and queen bee. She's an independent contributor to the show, and this commentary does not reflect the opinions of Arizona public media. The conversation we're not having. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. There is a conversation that is being forgotten as we move deeper into this time of social justice, empathy, and allyship. We are talking to our kids about how to stand up for our friends of different religious backgrounds, gender identities, race, and culture. We're sitting down with our sons and our daughters to talk about consent, what it is, what it sounds like, what it looks like, 
and why it is important and mandatory. However, the conversation I've yet to hear emerge, whether it be in the media or amongst friends, is how to be a friend. More specifically, how to be a friend to a child with special needs. I've yet to hear that any of my friends are having this conversation with their children. And because I am a parent to a child with special needs, it makes my heart feel a little heavy. Now don't get me wrong, some children just have that spirit about them where they see the differences, be them physical, emotional, or cognitive, but more than the differences, they see the person. They are not intimidated or nervously curious about the differences, but rather they are simply moved to be that person's friend. My daughter Emery was lucky enough to have kids like that in her life from the time she started nursery school. However, as she's gotten older and we move about in our community, I've noticed more and more children staring curiously, speaking to me instead of to her, or sadly, being scared of her. It's heartbreaking because she is one of the most gregarious and friendly kids I know. But I can't fault them, they're children, and they're doing what most kids do when faced with something unfamiliar. They're keeping their distance. And while I'm not going to blame parents for missing the mark regarding conversations they're having with their children, I am going to ask that you simply add this one to your roster. The conversation of how to be a friend to someone with special needs. I know, it seems silly. It seems unnecessary. And I get how it can also seem daunting. But take it from someone who sees your kid struggle to understand how to get close to my kid. It also seems incredibly taken for granted that just because a kid has manners and is polite, they'll magically know how to use those same tools with someone who is a little different from them. So I have tips. Number one, start by simply saying hi. Number two, ask their name. Number three, ask what games they like to play. Number four, if you'd like to play with that child, find a game you can play together. If you find that it might seem difficult to play with your new friend, ask an adult to help you figure out how you can play together. And last but certainly not least, treat your new friend the way you'd want to be treated. I should make note that not all children with special needs have verbal capabilities, and not all children have the physical capability to actively play. However, as the saying goes, where there's a will, there's a way. In the case of a child who struggles verbally, it is completely appropriate for your child to ask the adult whatever questions they may have. The point is to simply make contact, primarily with the child in question. They are not invisible, and they cannot afford to not be seen, especially in this day and age. And in our move towards radical allyship, it would behoove us to remember our littlest ones who might be just a tad different. You can find much more of Adiba Nelson online, especially at her website, The Full Nelson. The music was by Jaime J. Soto. She pulled in her horizon like a great fishnet, so much of life in its meshes. With that line from her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God, 
Zora Neale Hurston demonstrated her vivid poetic voice and neatly described her approach to life. Hurston lived from 1891 to 1960, making major contributions to the worlds of literature and anthropology. She became one of the leading lights of the artistic movement called the Harlem Renaissance. Her life has been dramatized in a one-woman play called Letters from Zora. Vanessa Bell Calloway, who among her many acting credits starred in the original Broadway cast of Dreamgirls, has been playing the role of Zora Neale Hurston for almost 10 years. Vanessa Bell Calloway will bring the show to Tucson next weekend as a guest of the Invisible Theater. Zora Neale Hurston wrote over a thousand letters uh, before she died, and she wrote letters to a lot of very famous people who were her friends at that time. She wrote letters to her ex-husbands, her husbands, uh, Langston Hughes, Richard Reich, uh, James Weldon Johnson, They're to a variety of people. So it's not tracking one specific relationship, but rather showing how Zora related to so many people in her life. Exactly. Zora Neale Hurston is recognized as one of the great artists to emerge from the Harlem Renaissance. Do you have an idea of what factors needed to come together to create that fertile artistic period in American history? Yeah, I mean, with black people, we weren't given the the same privileges as white people, and so they had to form together in their artistic community to appreciate each other's art and to support each other and to create because our literature and our art weren't considered important. So we kind of surrounded ourselves with each other to to do and enhance our own, you know, livelihood. And of course, because the art was so magnificent, the literature was poignant and the characters and everything that white people started gathering around. And that's why you have folks coming into white folks going into the Cotton Club, but black folks didn't go in because then our entertainment and our history, they saw how rich and wealthy it was and um, they wanted to be a part of it, but they didn't want us to be a part of it while they were being a part of it, partaking in it. So just like they used to have like the Langston Hughes and the, and the Zoras used to go to very rich people's homes and, you know, they would re- do readings and um, uh, people of that time who were musicians would play and sing piano. They were, they were the entertainment for the party, but they couldn't be a part of the party. So yeah, the Harlem Renaissance uh, was created because of the talent of everybody kind of ended up in Harlem at the same time with similar agendas, uh, different talents, similar agendas and sharing with each other and uplifting each other and creating works that are now still prevalent and pertinent to this day and become very into the literature, art, and music. She also was a scientist. She was an accomplished anthropologist. What is it in her background that you think led her to be such a potent and powerful figure? Because she was raised in an all-black town, so she has no limitations. She didn't know about racism until she left Eatonville. And, I mean, that just shows you the human nature, you know, the human mind. When you're told you're wonderful and you're beautiful and you're great, that's what you believe. That's what you do. That's what you produce. And then when you get out and people try to stifle you, then if you buy into it, that's what you become. So she was raised to believe she could do anything she wanted to do, and she did. She was creative, and she went after her own thoughts and, and her own mindset. And that's why she was poignant and did what she wanted to do. Well, did she ever talk about a moment of culture shock when she was... Yeah, when it... she left Eatonville, and it's in the piece. She leaves Eatonville to go to school. Her father sends her away to school, and that's when she realizes that there is prejudice, and she's not this precious Zora that she was in her hometown. She was another person. Do you think that she ever felt ostracized from 
her own people because of her interests in science and being as outspoken oh, as she was? She definitely did, especially men, because men back then, um, you know, women weren't supposed to have a voice. They were supposed to write what they were told to write and feel how they were told to feel. And this is something we addressed in the piece as well. And because she was very much a Renaissance woman, she she was very strong-minded. She wrote what she wanted to write. She said what she wanted to say. She listened to the the poise and the temperament of how people were talking then and what was going on. And she wrote, you know, her, her truth. And because she did that, she was ostracized by people, by critics, because they didn't want to accept the fact that a woman could be that strong and that outspoken and, and say what she wanted to say. And the men were always kind of like, you know, brushing up against her because they wanted the light shine on them only, and they didn't want to share it with the women. I mean, you know, it's the same thing. Women still fight for equality, we say. <laughs> Nora just wasn't the first woman fighting for equality back then. We still fight. You know, we fight for equal pay for the same job. Same thing with her. She was fighting for the same type of light shown on her, the same type of accolades for the same job. So you take that as against black men, but you take that against white men, you know, she really was getting, you know, pushed aside. What are some things that you as an actress keep in mind when you're portraying the role of Zora Neale Hurston? To keep it honest. Yeah, and also to think about portraying a woman of her era as opposed to your era. Well, you know, the first thing is you got to keep it honest. And I'm not trying to act like her because I didn't personally meet her. I don't know her. I mean, I've heard her. I've seen little footage of her, but I don't personally know her. So I'm not trying to imitate her. I'm just trying to breathe in what this person would be feeling, would be going through, knowing what I know about her, reading what I've read about that kind of stuff. Um, So I try to keep in mind the honesty of her journey, uh, the honesty of the piece that's written that's telling her story, the honesty of the letters that she herself has written, you know, the honesty of the work that's presented. I try to keep that in mind when I'm portraying it to the audience because that's most important that they get an honest portrayal. So it's like I become Zora in a sense of through my own interpretation, um, if you can understand what that is. What's a personal detail that you learned about her life through these letters that resonates with you? Something small about her that informs you in your performance? There's nothing small about Zora. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Nothing small about her, but she didn't take no mess, you know? She did it on her terms. She was unapologetically doing what she wanted to do. She did it purposefully, and she did it with meaning and zest and with attitude and with greatness. Nothing small about her. Vanessa Bell Calloway stars in Letters from Zora, Saturday, April 6th and Sunday, April 7th at the Invisible Theater, located at First and Drachman. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.